today on the Tree Lady Talks, we've got a real first again, because uh, we're doing a podcast all about development. Tell us a bit about what's going on, Sharon. It's, it's a bit busy. It is a bit busy. Well, we keep hearing build, build, build. And really, I want to know how is it going to affect the natural world? Because this podcast is looking at nature, people and creating outdoor spaces. So I've got a group of people together. The main contributor is Richard Collins from Landvest, who is a developer and thinks carefully about getting the right team in place to deliver thoughtful planning permission. It's interesting because developers are at the forefront of what's going on at the moment, aren't they? But they haven't always had a good press. There's been so many bland, soulless developments. And I think there's been concern from people that the environment hasn't been considered. And in some cases, I think that's been true in the and past. And I think now they're, they're beginning to get consultants on board as early as they can to tell them, you know, how they can really best make the spaces that they're going to develop into really sustainable community community areas. It's been driven by many things and, and this is really topical because there's a government white paper on planning so that's going to be a big reform. After that we're going to talk to three different consultants who work with developers to deliver sustainable change. And so who have we got? Well to start with we've got Catherine Xavier who is a chartered landscape architect. And then after that, we've got Dr. Susie Cardi, chartered ecologist, and Tracy Clark, chartered arboriculturalist. We've got Joshua Daniels, and of course, he works for Waits Construction on a huge development at the moment. Yes, because at the beginning, most of the podcast is talking about what happens before the spade hits the ground. But actually, it's really useful to know how are the reports that are being written, how is the planning that's being considered, actually implemented is it all ignored or does it actually translate into action hello this is sharon durden hollenby and you're listening to tree lady talks all music and production is by noel durden hollenby and all views expressed by me or the interviewee are our own Today we're speaking to Richard Collins, who's a director of Landvest. Um, Richard, thank you so much for joining us. How did you get involved with the development industry? Thank you, Sharon. Um, yeah, delighted to be here. So I started out in in 2000, go way back. I won't bore you with my, my life story, but so 2006 was when I started. And I started working for a, a mainstream developer at the time. But I've always had an, an inbuilt property history. My, my, my parents were involved in property. My grandfather has been. So I've always had a real understanding of property from a young age. And mm-hmm. I worked in agency and I worked in other, other areas. But as soon as I started to learn about development and, and land in particular and, and the nuances that that has, and they're definitely nuances in terms of the different processes that go into it, I was pretty hooked because the start of the process, and, and there is so much involved in that process from the legal side of it, the planning side of it. And, and I, was, I remember that one of the first few days of my, uh, my journey, for want of a better word, I was, I was told to, to learn the planning system, to, to ingratiate yeah. myself with that. 
So, so yeah, that, that's how it all started. And so in 2015, you formed Landfest with Jamie Braha. I, I think that has some unique qualities. Perhaps you could tell us what Landfest does and what your aspirations are. Yeah, of course, of course. So we started in, it was like a long time ago, in 2015, and, and the journey we've been on. And when we set up, we had ideals and we had uh, a direction travel that we wanted to go in. And that's that, I think, like any business, has changed over time. And really now, we are a land promoter. We're a, a small developer. Um, and we also offer uh, the latter part that I mentioned is probably the part that's taken us by, I wouldn't say surprise, that's probably mm-hmm. too strong a word, but it's certainly evolved into something more than we maybe thought it would. And, and we would want to continue to evolve that because we we get involved in effectively project managing the site from, from inception to ju- just to the planning delivery. So it's mm-hmm. that initial initial stage. And it goes hand in hand with the promoting work that we do as well, because it's all about maximizing the the site in terms of of the layout in terms of of planning in terms of of the political aspect so it's it's bringing in uh, everything that we do on on one of our sites for for a client so Mm -hmm. it's a a different approach um but but as enjoyable and and you know we we get involved as as much as we as we do if it was our own site particularly if it's somebody else's um assets or, or you know land that they've acquired or land that they, they've owned and we now have in our in our armory we have around at least 20 sites uh, that cover that that spectrum of, of those areas that I mentioned um, and actually now totaling over it's probably over a thousand units now that we've got either mm-hmm. in, in control um, or that we act for for another a third party so it's it's grown significantly from from where it's where it's been and that the passion that Jamie and I have um, is is hopefully evident in everything that we do and, yes. and the way that we deal with with people that, that that's what it is planning planning and development our business I'm sure you know it's all yeah. about dealing with people yes absolutely and actually that is it is about people management it's about developing relationships with local authorities with your consultant team with your clients, landowners, it, it is so much a people business and it's really enjoyable for that as well. Um, when you're first introduced to a potential development site, what are the multitude of different things do you have to think about? There is a, a, a system we use and a, a, a not, it's not a software system, but it's a more established system that allows us to first establish whether the site has any any major constraints. So we will identify if the site is in a conservation area, in an area of outstanding natural beauty, if it's in the green belt. So it's the policy, the planning policy element that we start with. So we can understand the basis of the site. That, that's the first port of call. And then we will start to look into more detail about the planning policy. We focus on local authorities that we know, and that, that has, that has its huge benefits, not in just understanding the specific policy of that local authority, but it's, it's knowing officers, it's knowing what stage their local plan is at. And, and it's now more than ever, the, 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 the large section of our role is, is political and understanding the local politics, the, you know, the, the key stakeholders, whether that's parish council, ward councillors, even local MPs, we do engage at that level. The first port of call is obviously just to understand 
the site itself and, and its, its specific uh, policy designation. And then as simple as this, we go and see it. So we drive down there, we go and see the site. It sounds basic, but a lot of people, especially with, with obviously with, with COVID and measures, and it, it does make a huge difference because we have access to so much digitally. So we can look at comparables in terms of market research. We can understand what's selling in that area. We can look at planning that's achieved next door, around the corner, wherever. Mm-hmm. We have access to that. But the heart, of, for me, of, of assessing a site is going to see it, living it. Oh, yeah. Getting mud on your boots. You have to get mud on your boots to get it in your soul, don't you? Absolutely. There's a lot of drive-by land buyers out there and, and it's a dangerous it's a dangerous ploy because when I go to a site, the first thing I start to look at is is a multitude of areas. So we look at levels, topography, we look at existing tree cover, we look at neighbouring properties, we look at overlooking in terms of neighbouring windows aspect. So that's the starting point. Um, and also obviously look at relationships with neighbouring buildings in terms of height, precedent. Mm-hmm. So it's all about understanding those elements, but also it's looking at areas like services, um, overhead cables, because uh, obviously we need to understand that we can serve the site. So that, that's mm-hmm. one of the really important things. So establishing what's there is particularly if it's a site that is is not urban it's more rural because ultimately you probably won't have uh, surface water main drainage and, and, and obviously we need to make sure that the heart of that scheme that we make sure we understand that we can serve that site uh, we won't have capacity mm-hmm. and, and elements like that but that's from driving down to the site you can get a good picture of, of, of what's going yeah. on and, and just a feel for the location driving around yeah. what, what's the architectural you know aesthetically what's going on with the local vernacular is it sustainable is it close to local buses does it have local bus connections is it close to the station and then obviously we drill down into p-tail rating which obviously assesses the site's sustainability credentials and, and that's and that's before you've even started to consider anything legally because we obviously yeah. have to look into the title you know are there any restrictions on the title are there any easements are there any restrictive covenants which would restrict us building what we want to build? Yeah, the three key areas are, are, are kind of planning-led, then the legal side of it, and obviously understanding the site's location and, and, and specific. Yeah, absolutely. So do you draw on a big consultant team externally to help you with those specialist areas? Yes, yeah. I, I, do you know, sometimes you look at it, and, and that's the areas that I think people or the general public, and I don't, want to, I don't want to pigeonhole the public, but certainly people who aren't in the industry that are outside looking in, is the, the speculative risk that we have to take to achieve a planning permission. Because at the end of the day, there are no givens. There, there is no, and I think that's the anonymous conception that developers come bowling in and they use their, their influence to you know, negotiate any consent that they want. And, and it's, it's, it couldn't be further from the truth because we are beholden to everything that, that, that goes through planning. And I think if people start to, you know, maybe submit their own application, even for a small extension, they start to realise the process that we have to go through. But sorry, getting back to the heart of your question, yeah, the, the consultancy side of it is huge. You know, we have a site in Leighton that we're acting for, for retained clients on. And that has, I was looking at the, at the at we, we call it a deliverables list. So we, get, we go through a list of key consultants that's 30 to 35 individuals that are working on their, their discipline uh, within the whole process. And it's bringing together 
that team because there's there's so much crossover. Yeah, what sort of consultants do you use, particularly in relation to, I mean, not naming names, but in terms of the natural environment and also perhaps considering how people will feel when they live there as well? We would use an ecologist and they would do in terms of the, you know, you mentioned the natural environment and obviously an arboriculturist itself, we have to ensure that we, we cover any existing trees any replanting measures um, and, and you mentioned you know the, the, the public realm element of that from, from an ecological and, and, and arbicultural perspective is, is huge because the natural environment and, and, and place making and, and shaping an environment for a site is huge and, and that that has become ever more prevalent with with what we've been through with with the pandemic you've got to make sure that a development can stand on its own two feet and it, and is if self-sufficient yes. in, in everything whether that's deliveries you know now which is we, we were talking yesterday about highways and marrying different uses into a site so residential commercial goods vehicles hgvs you know that element of of trying to to ensure that the, the, the place still is is the forefront of, of how we plan the site so that when people are walking from the edge of the street down into the site you've got to make sure that it's a it's an environment in, within which is is safe you know they have a safe means of passage mm-hmm. to get to their properties that it is well landscaped that it is well lit um, that is safeguarded in terms of, of anything that needs to be you know, thought about in terms of, of people's day-to-day living. But yeah, so we, we would consider ecology, we would consider agriculture, we would consider, we consider air quality um, now, which is, which is a, a, mm-hmm. a huge part of the planning process. Uh, we consider noise, so any, anything right on cue. That, that, yeah. Right on cue, <laughs> we have sirens going out outside, exactly. your, outside um, your room. You know, so that it's, yeah, yeah the, the, the natural environment element of the site now is, is, is so multifaceted. I, I don't want to say it's, it's, gone, it's gone beyond what we need to consider, but it's certainly, we're now at a stage where the areas that we have to cover are vast. And, and yeah, there, there's a lot to be considered. You, you cannot walk into any planning authority or think that you can go in of scheme of any size and produce a few reports and, and kind of get away with it. Those, you know, not that that was ever there, but those days of that process are, are, are long gone. And we have to consider so much now, uh, and, and rightly so. I, I don't disagree with that at all. But if, if I showed some people the amount of work that we have to do, get an application validated and, and submitted, you know, we have to consider remediation strategies we have to consider as i've mentioned noise and vibration we have to consider the landscaping part of the scheme you know there is so much to consider not just the built form it's it's a it's a huge array of of reports that we have to we have to now compile and ensure that that we comply with rights of light daylight sunlight Um, it's vast it, it is and also it's not just those individual reports and and the surveying and working of those consultants but it's it's making sure they liaise with each other and also increasingly with new methods let's take uh, sustainable urban drainage for example um, the movement towards rain gardens the fact that uh, water can be recycled within a site and so there is a, no runoff it's all used back within the site with linear landscape planting, surface water attenuation through specialist technology and underground sort of crate systems, and also how beautiful that is and how that makes a more pleasant place to live because 
one of the things about the pandemic during lockdown was that people had to literally just look outside their window at what was there. And those who could look out onto beauty or to look out onto trees and nature fared better. In fact, there's an academic study that is taking place at the moment that's really analysing that. So it is, I think, for you um, all in this industry, a really exciting time of change. One of the other things that's going to affect you and is already is a biodiversity net gain. Is that something that you started working with ahead of it becoming a legal requirement? Absolutely. Um, you know, if you, if you take, again, I, I know I've referenced it before, but the, the site in Leighton, you know, it's, it's current use. It's, a, it's got a waste use. It's got a waste designation. And um, there, is a, there is a brook which, which actually it sits outside of the title of the site, but it's, it's certainly relevant. And at the minute, it's, it's disused. It's not particularly pleasant. Um, and we are looking to to bring that that brook into our scheme, not not just from a not just from a biodiversity perspective, but also for linkages into into areas that are close to the station and, and, a, and a proper pedestrianised link. Uh, we're looking at a footbridge, but within that, in the heart of your question, that the biodiversity element of it is is key because there will certainly be elements within that brook that, that we can use to our advantage to uh, not bring that to life, that's too strong a word, but, but certainly look at the ecological benefits that we can use that will result in, in you know, the fundamental change of use of this site. It's not a particularly pleasant use as, as, as it sits there today. So we definitely need to look at ways in which we can bring areas, add greenery, add landscaping benefits to the scheme. Um, so. Were we looking at it before? It was certainly a consideration, but certainly that the drive towards that biodiversity net gain that you mentioned is, is certainly there and is, and is evident. And if you don't include that as part of your proposals, then, you know, you, you, you're missing a trick. Um, and, and, and we should want to, you know, it's a, just a benefit to ecological enhancement. It's a benefit to, to individuals that are using that scheme, because if they have a more pleasant environment that they can access or use or you know, you have these, you know, we have areas like pocket play areas, you have leaps, you have areas that people can use and they've got to be, they can't just be throwaway areas within the site. They've, they've got to be, and I, and I think we've been guilty of that. I think you look at some scheme and you drive past and there are areas that have been used that are, are, are used as, as communal amenity or, or areas of play. And you look at them and you think they are a bit of an afterthought. And, and now, more than ever, we've got to make sure that these are areas that people want to use and they are integrated in the scheme. If you've got a, a large mansion block, you know, a flatted block, where you're trying to create as much outside space and amenity, we've got to make sure that we add those benefits to people that they're actually going to practically use them um, and that they are integrated as part of the scheme, you know, as well as cycle storage, as well as renewable forms of energy you mentioned suds which obviously is is a, is a, is is so important that there's we've still got a way to go because there are there's new technology and and, and we've 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 still got to make sure that those areas are are further enhanced and as much as i i don't want to say it there's still got to be for for a for any developer there's still got to be an mm. economic side to it I don't want to sound like a greedy developer. Of course. I think that's understood. It has to be financially viable. And as part of development, you have to contribute community infrastructure levy. I know under the planning white paper that Section 106 yeah. agreements are going to be scrapped. Um, we'll come on to that later. 
I think it's really interesting to to see how things are moving forward because it's fair to say that in the past, um, not too distant past, some developments have been very bland. You know, opportunities for um, meaningful street plant, street tree planting, or properly designed community spaces where people want to go there because it feels great and there's natural surveillance and there's beauty around and also the biodiversity enhancements through more sensitive landscaping that's really moving forward we still have some way to go but i know that many developers including yourself are actually working in that direction Um, and i think that will help public perception yeah and i think the you mentioned community there, and I, and I think that's key. You also mentioned the, the government's reforms, and, and, I, and I, I was looking over them a, a few days ago, and, and I've been talking with the planning consultants that we use about that. And, and I was reading some of the kind of the, the, the headline elements of, of what was being said um, and what's come out of that that white paper, and obviously that's going through its own consultation process. And there is mm-hmm. there appears to be a driver to to simplify the planning process um, in terms of how they govern areas. Um, they've obviously mentioned, I think I've written these down, but growth, renewal and, and protected areas mm-hmm. within individual local authorities, which which I think is, is a good move in some ways. It, it makes it quite specific. So I hope it's not going to, we're not going to go in a route of, of areas being, you know, greenbelt areas that where there is justifiable development, where they are in that protected area. I think there's got to mm-hmm. be some there's still going to be some flexibility. You don't want the planning system to be too linear, which is certainly easy. And the other element that I wanted to touch on was that they've talked about local communities controlling where development goes. Mm, how's that going to work then? Because nobody wants any development next to their backyard, do they? That to me is a very holistic statement because I think... I know, I'm being cheeky, but <laughs> it's it's... It's generally true, though. Yeah. People will, will fight development on the land that's next to them unless they can see the benefit, unless that land... You mentioned Leighton, for example, which is a, a waste site. Um, I don't think anybody could describe that as beautiful, and there is a housing need in Leighton. So I, I should imagine with the community, perhaps that's more favourably looked at. I don't know the details. Correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, no, the, 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 the localism agenda is, is is clearly being pushed again, and it has been in the past. And I think that I think we need to I think we need to get on board with that. But it can't just be localism where you, you know the development is next door to you or is is in the you know the neighbouring street or whatever. It needs to be. A, if, they, if they're going to push this agenda, they've really got to get people engaged um, with mm-hmm. with us as, as as developers because you know we we, we do engage as, as a as a company. We we place a huge emphasis on engagement with all key stakeholders. So we engage mm-hmm. with the parish council, we engage with ward councillors, we engage with members of the planning committee. We don't always get great level of engagement, and it varies dramatically. Yes, local authority to local authority, and and that's one of the inherent issues. You're going from from one local authority to the other, and and the, the way that they, even though it, fundamentally you're dealing with the planning system, the way in which they go about how they do that varies enormously, and that's one of the big issues. There's no no standardised approach. They are I say laws to themselves. I've got to be careful here, but they're 
Um, let's just say they're different flavors. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, and and I find the same too. And often it's about staff resourcing as well, because there has been austerity, and some local authorities have a very high staff turnover as well. Some local authorities are, are have a greater member presence than others. So I really liked what you said earlier about only working within the areas that you know. Mm. Um, and it's not just business sense; it's also in enjoying the work that you do and being able to make those connections with people in councils. I'm interested in other thoughts you have about the white paper and and has it already affected the approach and the attitude of some of the local authorities that you've been engaging with? Yeah, we, we've, from, from a real, you know, I, I do want to focus on, on you know, certainly the positive elements of, of what we've seen in the last few weeks. You know, we've been in a real you know, the, the, the pandemic has, has caused, you know, such a, a, a seismic effect on, on all of us. And the, the, the major positive that we've seen, I mean, the one thing I will say is that we engage with a number of different local authorities. And the one thing I want to say is the adjustment to how we've all had to work, how we, how we manage applications day to day. That's the first thing mm-hmm. that I'd like to say. We've, you know, the adjustment has been, has been, has been impressive. Um, that, that's not just planning, I think that's, that's yeah. wider than that. But certainly from, from my point of view, from it hasn't stifled us in terms of delivering sites and delivering applications. Mm-hmm. You know, they, we've adjusted to virtual planning committees, virtual uh, meetings. But, but one of the real things that I've certainly seen is um, we, we've got another site in, in another London borough, which is a substantial site that we're, that we're bringing forward. And we've had some, I'd say probably the best level of engagement that I've ever had on any site. It's brilliant. Um, we've engaged with the leader of the council. We've engaged with the head of planning, head of, develop, head of development control. Um, and we've just had a real, there's definitely a shift in, in emphasis on providing delivery of homes to meet huge targets that they've been set as a borough across the whole borough, you know, whether that's in more affluent areas, but areas that are, you know... More socially deprived? Yeah, regeneration, um, more, you know, there are areas that are more, are more challenging within their boroughs. And in particular, this area, we've just seen a real huge element of engagement and positivity surrounding the scheme. As long as we explain the narrative of the site, as long as we can, we can make sure that the planning credentials are, are clear, and that we are considering all aspects of, of, of the site, of, of, you know, many of which I've mentioned, which is highway impact, sustainability. Um, this site happens to be in the Greenbelt as well, but it's what we call a previously developed site. So there is, there is significant built form on that site. We would call it a non-conforming use in the Greenbelt. And we believe that the site has huge credentials to deliver big, big numbers to the local authority. And, and as part of that, and it's something that I haven't mentioned, is affordable housing because there is a huge misconception around what affordable housing is. Affordable housing is is a great, great tool that, that a lot of local authorities don't don't really deliver enough of. That that's not that's not blanket across all local authorities. But certainly in this case, we will be looking to deliver a significant percentage of affordable housing as part of our of our site. And that will be Houses that are that are what we call you know affordable rent. So people that are on a housing list that want to rent properties that don't have the ability to to acquire a property, they don't have the means. Um, so that's that's vital to any community. Then we've obviously got. I, might, I may be speaking slightly out of turn here because I'm not a, a, an affordable housing 
specialist. But so- no, it's really interesting for people to understand yeah, this. So my terminology might not be quite right, but then we have something called shared ownership, where an individual has part ownership of um, of a property and then has the ability over time to to, to make up the, the the total amount of ownership. So so to to, to take one hundred percent ownership of that property, you know, and this 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 can be anybody. It's not just what we'd call key workers and so nurses and doctors. It's it's anybody that is struggling to get on mm-hmm. the property ladder in areas that are a lot of areas, you know, because younger people now are, are obviously still struggling to to get onto the housing market. And if yeah, they, you know, they 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 need that that step up. Help to buy is a, is a huge part of our industry as well, and, and will continue to be. Mm-hmm. Again, that's a great scheme that has been used used by many. But that that driver and that element is is so important to to, to the site. And affordable housing shouldn't be shouldn't be viewed as an uh, with any skepticism at all. It's it's a it's a fundamental part of our of our industry, and will continue to, mm-hmm. to to be so. But but alongside that, we've had as I said, we've had some engagement with the leader of the council, and the, the difference being is that. We've been welcomed with open arms. I think that that's the best way to describe it. Yeah. We've had a situation where you feel like we can engage with them. You can have a, a, a very constructive conversation. And, and they've, they've said to us that, you know, they want us to sign up to something called a, a, a planning performance agreement, call it a PPA. And that, that agreement sets out the planning stages for us to hopefully be able to deliver this site and submit a formal planning application. And it's, it's refreshing and, and, it, and it's been a real eye-opener for, for us because clearly the rhetoric from, from you know, Boris and, and Robert Jenerick and the build, build, build element, which, which keeps coming out, which is great, is, is certainly, that, that's filtering down to local government. If we can see that change, you know, we're, we're not in an industry where you can just, you know, bowl in and, and get planning on anything. You know, the, the principles have to be there, but we need that engagement with the local authority to deliver that. And I think that perhaps part of the success of what you're doing now is the fact that you have engaged consultants early on. You've done your due diligence desktop study. You've gone out, got mud on your boots. You've talked to the people who know their speciality and you've got them talking to each other to build up a joined up picture of how that land might be brought forward. Yeah. And um, I think that is an excellent model going forward. And, and, you know, and in the spirit of uh, fairness for this podcast, that hasn't always been the case with some developers in the past, but I'm observing it happening more and more. Do you feel positive about the future of development given the white paper and, and the, the drive for building for beauty, for example? Yeah, absolutely. I think the, 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 the future is if, if, we can, if we can simplify the planning system, if we can take measures to, to engage positively within the communities within which we live, then that, that has to be a positive. I think that there are still some areas that need attention in terms of decision-making processes, both in terms of at officer level and probably at, at, at planning committee stage. I think that area definitely, definitely needs some more thought. But yeah, certainly if we can go in the direction of travel that we are, it's engagement. It's all about that level of engagement that I've talked about. That, that's at the heart of everything. And if we can, if we can have that positive communication from, from developer to not, not just to local authority, but to, to other, other bodies, and I've mentioned them, which is the local parish councils, um, ward councillors, and, and right up to 
to MP level where necessary, then I really think we could see, uh, you know, a, a change for good. And look, we, we have to build more houses, whether we like it or not, as, as a nation. And as a, you know, that filters down everywhere. We need to get on board with the fact that some areas are going to need to see real growth and real development. And, and that is happening. I'm not saying it's not. But that, that mental side of, of thinking of, of developers as land-grabbing, money-hungry vultures, <laughs> for of a better word, which sometimes we're seen as, I think that that can be a change for good. And we, we are, the message from me working in the industry is that we are actively and genuinely happy to engage with anybody, whether that's a public exhibition stage, when we meet the local community, whatever stage, however early on, we want to have that engagement because if we can get some traction early on in the process, that, that will underpin our, our ultimate success. And I think that's at the heart of, of, of everything. And I, I think there are elements of that within this white paper. And it's a very, very difficult area to reform planning. There are so many areas that it covers. But I do think that a more simplified approach that is, that is being suggested to, to planning designation and to, and, to, and to delivering these homes, then that, that has to be a change for good. And, and the simplified system, as I understand it from reading the paper, and I, I'm no expert, does seem to protect the biodiversity and the tree element of things. I mean, that is written in that they're looking for tree-lined streets, and it's not the simplification in theory, as I understand it, does not mean driving through all the biodiversity considerations that we've just discussed. I, I hope I'm right in that and be interested to hear what other people think. It's been absolutely fascinating to understand what goes on when you look at a piece of land for development and, and how complex it is from considering the planning constraints, the site itself, and the sort of cultural and political landscape, as well as the, the physical landscape. I wonder, finally, um, I always ask people, what is your dream scenario? <laughs> That's a tough question. It, 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 goes to, it goes back to the heart of what I was saying before. And, and I think that I would like to see a planning, a planning system that not only allows for that level of engagement that I've talked about, but allows every process that we have individuals that understand how we need to deliver that planning and, and the background context of how we do that. I, I feel that, that there are some areas of the planning system where I think that that can get lost. And mm -hmm. whilst I've mentioned the political side of it, that, that, that's important. I would like to see a slightly more simplified process, but just to, and some, at times, some accountability as well, certainly in, in local government, which, which we're seeing, we are seeing more of. But yeah, I, I would like to see us certainly continue to improve how we operate and how the planning system can be reformed. But, but, I, but I, I, yeah, all I would like to say, certainly from my point of view, is, is that we are willing to engage and we are ready as, a, as an industry to engage. And as long as we, that's reciprocated at, at every level, I think that will help the process so that we can make the right decisions at the right time. And, and as you mentioned, the placemaking, the, the, how we shape communities and how we build has to be at the heart of that because people want to live in a development that offers all those benefits you've mentioned and, and, and is a place to live, to work that relates to, to how we live these days and, and to how we want to live both in terms of renewable energy, in terms of sustainability, all those areas that all has to be considered. And we don't want to see soulless developments going up that don't do that.
we want to be proud of what we build and we want to be proud of legacy ultimately that we're leaving for future generations and that's that's so important excellent it sounds like you're driving towards local distinctiveness that's relevant to the the setting and to the people so thank you so much richard that was such a fascinating insight thank you really enjoyed it thank you sharon Catherine Xavier, Chartered Landscape Architect. Catherine, thank you so much for joining us today. No, thank you, Sharon, for inviting me to speak on your podcast. Catherine, you're a really experienced landscape architect. Could you just explain simply what a landscape architect does? Sure. So I've been a landscape architect now for over 20 years, believe it or not. And um, a landscape architect is basically um, an architect that um, designs everything outside of a building. So um, it could be um, a park, it could be a children's play area, a garden, it could be a street. So um, everywhere outside, um, we basically, we, we will design and help to implement. Oh, it sounds fascinating, really important to shape people's lives as well. And, and how can good design improve the biodiversity of the site and also how people feel about the spaces that they live in? Well, um, we're quite lucky because we see um, all sorts of different sites. So um, we could operate in a very rural area where we're looking at transforming an agricultural field into a, a housing development, for example. And the ecological value of an agricultural field is pretty low, really. Mm -hmm. And so there is the opportunity to incorporate plenty of um, open spaces and ecological features within the new landscape. And so we will liaise very closely with an ecologist who will provide us with plenty of ideas as to what we can potentially do within the landscape to, to enhance it. And also um, we will look at the, the planting, for example, and try to provide native trees, native plants, plants that are rich for insects and birds. Um, and uh, so, so we can make a real difference even through development. But also we have um, urban sites as well where um, you know, we're trying to squeeze as much green as we can mm. into a city. Mm -hmm. So we're looking at providing landscapes on roofs, walls wherever we can fit them and again you know trying to provide um, a landscape that is you know very ecologically rich wherever we can and there's plenty of opportunity um, it's just a matter of getting you know landscape architects and ecologists on board early so that we can influence uh, the architecture and the engineering so that these elements can be provided it's so important to get in early, isn't it? Because you have got to work with civil engineers um, where you're designing new surfaces and uh, tree planting pits, which might need to be engineered. And also, I love the idea of green roofs and, and even putting trees on buildings as well. There's going to be a real movement mm. for that, isn't there? Absolutely. And um, we find that where we're brought on board early as part of a team, we can liaise with the structural engineer and the civils engineer to um, talk about you know, loading um, space on top of, kind of basement ceilings as such um, and um, allow for these spaces to be created so that we can plant these areas. Otherwise, um, if we come in too late, which again we found on certain projects has been the case, 
um, we don't have those opportunities available to us anymore because the loadings have all been calculated, that the buildings have sometimes even been constructed and um, the landscaping can't be facilitated as much as we would like. And that's, un that's unfortunate. It is unfortunate um, because there's so much can be achieved by layering. So, for example, if I'm walking in a city street and I look at past planting, it tends to be mown grass and lollipop trees. Mm. The trend is really from everything from ground cover to perennials, bulbs, herb layers, low, medium and high shrubs, tall perennials, trees of all different sizes. So, um, I'm, I'm really excited about what I've seen in the last few years in terms of landscape architecture. Um, are there any particular trends that you're noticing right now? What is a buzz thing in landscape architecture design? I think for us, it's, um, it's very much about moving towards uh, more sustainable landscapes, which is kind of twinned with the whole climate change movement. And so um, we would like to work more closely with um, especially civil engineers to talk about how we can have closed water systems, for example. So um, we can collect the runoff um, from hard surfaces and roofs, collect it in rain gardens, and then reuse the water for irrigation or to, um, to pass back into the building to be used again. So... So, it, so rather than you know discharging the water straight into a, a, a the sewer system um, through pipe, through traditional pipe work, we're looking at you know much more creative ways in which um, water can be collected and reused. Um, but 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 just just generally looking at how you know we can tackle climate change because we're in a very privileged position in which you know we can actually um, be part of. Um, this movement and um, it would be great you know for us to work in teams with enlightened developers to, to move this forward and create projects that are much more sustainable. You're right we are in a privileged position right now because it's so important to get it right because accelerating climate change and there's such synergy between all of the elements that we've described creating a sustainable rain garden which is beautiful good for insects um, and actually creates a really pleasant place for people to walk mm. by you get uh, it's not just meeting the ecological requirements but Landscape architecture is so important for shaping how even people feel and behave in a space. Would you agree? Absolutely. And um, another um, element that we're trying to, to push is putting trees back into streets, for example. Yes. So if you, if you think about walking down a tree-lined avenue street, how that makes you feel um, to one that's devoid of any vegetation. Um, it's, it's really important to try and break down the barriers for putting trees back into streets and looking at ways in which we can put, put them back. Absolutely. Retrofitting the landscape really mm. is, is a phrase. I mean, one of the issues with that can be underground services, but you can get a 3D laser survey of what's going on underground. And, and then it can take some time, can't it, to sort of work out if services can be moved. And also, I, I was um, fortunate to have a look at um, some trees being installed in um, Oxford and Regent Street fairly mm -hmm. recently. And, you know, if you can put trees in Oxford and Regent Street, you can put them anywhere. It, it's, it's, all, it's all possible, um, given an open mind. 
Oh, I love that. That's really inspiring. So it sounds like a really great career. And if people are interested in becoming a landscape architect, where can they find out some more information? They can um, log on to the Landscape Institute website, um, which gives more information about the, the profession. And also get in touch with um, one of the colleges as well. They'll be really happy to talk to you about the courses that they do. That's great. It's got a wealth of information there. And, and finally, Catherine, what is your dream scenario for your industry? I just wish that we can be brought on board really quickly um, at, at the outset with a, for a project and see it all the way through to the very, very end and be able to work with um, each discipline, hopefully o- open-minded, because that's the best way of coming up with the, the very optimum solution is, is, is coming in early, working with other disciplines, working with open-minded developers. Yes. And having the chance, you know, to produce the very best that we can produce. Oh, excellent. Well, thank you so much for your time. That's so inspiring. Thank you, Catherine. No, thank you, Sharon. Thank you. Tracy Clark, Chartered Arboriculturist. So Tracy, tell us about what happens with trees and development. Oh, hi Sharon, thanks for having me on. When a development site's gonna happen, when it's gonna be going for uh, planning, a client will often contact someone like us who can carry out what we call a British Standard 5837 tree survey. Before that, we might even just do a quick walkover on the site with the client just to give them a feel for what the tree constraints are going to be that they need to consider in terms of what space will be left over on the site for them to build on. Mm -hmm. We might get involved at that stage, which is fairly informal, or going back to the tree survey side of it. We're instructed to carry out this British Standard Tree Survey, which is a standardised approach to looking at all the trees on the site or next to the site and giving them a sort of value. What are they worth? Are they important? What function do they have in the landscape? Mm-hmm. You know, do they do they create a you know a sense of place? Are they old, historic? So we do an assessment, and we will give that information usually in the form of a plan, and we give the developer that information, and we say, look, these are really important trees. You're going to need to give them this amount of space to protect their roots. You're going to need to give them this amount of space to. Uh, make sure that they can work in harmony with any built footprint or building. Mm-hmm. These trees might be important for wildlife. We might pick that up and refer them to an ecologist. Um, and so we do, uh, so that's sort of the early stages of a project. And, and, and it's great to get involved at that stage because before anybody's thinking about where do the buildings go, we're really taking account of the space that trees currently take on a site and what space they might need in the future to coexist with building. I tend to work with the architect or uh, other designers and we look at where the building can go, will it work, are there going to be problems with shade to living rooms, what might the local authority think about how this layout works with trees and we try to direct and guide our clients to create um, you know, good spaces to live. You know, just trying to create a, a sort of a, a situation where trees can coexist with buildings for the long term. Mm-hmm. We um, guide our clients on keeping the most sustainable trees on the site. You know, yes. ones that are going to be there for a long time are good quality 
and you know they're important and they need to be part of the consideration and integrated properly. So it's not just um, having room for the buildings to be built and also the gardens but it's actually room for all the construction activities as well isn't it? You have a knowledge of what will work on a site and what won't so yeah sort of making sure there's enough space to actually physically get in and do the work that's needed to be done without compromising um, the health of the trees that are retained on site. It's quite a complex process really because that's just the early stages and once planning permission has been given, you know, usually developers have to comply with conditions of consent. So quite often um, one of the conditions of consent will be a tree protection condition and we will advise our clients on what they need to do to um, make sure trees can be adequately protected on site. And I go back to the British standard as well. We have this British standard. When a planning application is um, submitted to the local authority for development consent, lots of different reports go in to say that noise has been looked at, environment's been looked at, and our role is to produce what we call an arboricultural impact assessment. And that, what we do is we work with the client before we write that report to try and get to a situation where the outcome is really good for everybody. So the development works, the trees can be retained, all the issues of construction are considered and addressed and and that gets put into the with the planning application to show the local authority that everything around trees has been properly considered yeah once planning consent is granted we usually produce another type of report called an arboricultural method statement and that will outline all the approaches on site that might affect a tree um mm -hmm. you know it might be putting in utilities like services, BT, electric, water, drainage, building, you know, how are they actually going to get to the areas of the site that they want to build without damaging trees. So we will sort of provide something called a tree protection plan, mm -hmm. which will show which trees are staying, how they're going to be protected, whether that's through putting up fencing, which mm -hmm. will protect the roots and the crowns of the trees or temporary ground protection, which prevents the soil from being compacted, which can have a really detrimental impact on tree roots. So we might specify how things go on on site, how things are going to be carried out to make sure that any impact on tree roots, for example, is minimised. So we might be on site helping the contractor to carry out specific works, or we might mm -hmm. need to do some root pruning, or we might need to expose roots to understand where the foundations can go. Mm -hmm. um, so we get quite you know, involved on site with um, developers to sort of make sure that what we say in the method statement is actually practically implemented whilst, you know, whilst they're carrying out the work. So it's quite, you know, it's looked at properly and you know, there is an expectation that trees will be protected in accordance with a certain agreed method and we help to implement that with the contractor on site. One of the things that is really difficult around trees are levels. We might specify something, for example, we might say, in order to put this footpath in here, it's got to be no dig. And by no dig, we mean no dig. You know, there's mm -hmm. no excavations taking place in that area of site. And we have to have looked at that properly 
in relation to finished levels for rooms in buildings, for example. So mm-hmm. if you have a no dig which sits above existing levels, that has an impact on how that footpath might lead to steps getting into the house. And it's, you know, we've got we've got to identify all that. That's our job, you know, no one else is looking at those issues. Yes. If that was to be ignored or if it was missed say they didn't have an ARB consultant involved looking at these things then it can have a really detrimental impact on on trees during construction you know the implementation so it's quite involved and without someone knowing that you have to look at these issues like us there's a risk that it could be over you know overlooked it often doesn't come to light until they're on site and they're looking at it and going we can't get this in here because you know the levels need to be like this here but you know, quite often we can overcome them if we are involved. Well, that's brilliant. Well, thank you so much, Tracy. That's a fascinating insight into the life of a, a boricultural <laughs> consultant and all those m- tiny details that make a huge difference. Dr. Susie Cardi, Chartered Ecologist. Susie, please could you tell us what an ecologist does? Hello, Sharon. Well, we look at the animals and the plants within an area and we study how we would protect them from processes such as development and enhance them um, through mitigation as part of developments. Um, that's it in a nutshell, really. Well, that's great. So if you're contacted by somebody who wants to build on land and they say, can you, can you do the ecological surveys for us? What's the first thing that you do? The very first thing we would do is a preliminary ecological appraisal. Um, and that's got three elements to it. Um, the first is a desktop study where we would get um, records from local records offices and we'd use websites with interactive maps. And we'd look for any pre-existing records of protected species, um, particular habitats and special sites, designated sites. So that would be the first element. The second element is the field study where we would go and visit the site and walk around the different habitats across the site. And we would make notes and map each habitat, usually using a color-coded system. And we'd also be using our eyes and our ears to look around and record any signs of species. So you may find badger dung or hair on a barbed wire fence. We'll use our sense of smell. So can we smell if it's a fox mm-hmm. um, and a mammal hole? Um, we'll listen for certain bird calls. All this information we'll take down and annotate on our maps. Mm-hmm. And then the third element of it, of, of it is the report where we'd bring together the desktop element and the field survey element and write as concisely as possible what the key e- ecological constraints are, mm-hmm. what the opportunities are for a site um, and first thoughts on um, mitigation for the site. Mm-hmm. And that really feeds back to the client and the project team um, so they know what yeah, what the operations are and what the, what the opportunities are and what the constraints are. Excellent. And this isn't just rural sites, is it? You carry this work out on any site. I mean, you can find a lot of wildlife in inner city areas as well, can't you? That's right. Our, the sites that we work on range from a disused car park, um, just um, very small in nature and very limited constraints. Sometimes on those sites, you may get invasive species such as Japanese knotweed Mm -hmm. as the dominant um, ecological constraint, all the way up to large rural sites, many, many hectares in size with complex uh, ecosystems 
So there is a real range and each site has its own opportunities and its own problems. And you really have to adapt to those different conditions to get the best for biodiversity. That's right. So when you find protected species, tell us about the types of surveys you do for those, because that can be quite hard work and quite challenging, can't it? That's right. So um, one of the most frequent species that we survey for are bats, um, 18 species of bats uh, in this country. Mm-hmm. And when we when we survey for them, obviously, we... Um, we can't tell the bat when to come out so we can serve it. We have to fit in with its life cycle and its activity pattern. So we do our bat surveys at dusk um, and we try and get a few hours sleep in between and go back out at dawn. Yeah. So it's, it's hard work. You're working in amongst the elements, so it can be very hot and very cold. Mm. You're walking over rough terrain and it can be unsociable hours um, and you're often working away from home. Having said that, you get an opportunity to be in the outdoors. You get a great variety of to your working life. One moment you're writing a complex report. Mm-hmm. Next, you're watching 50 bats fly out of a barn yeah. roof. Uh, it's really varied, and that is the beauty of, of the job for me. That's brilliant. And with the protected species survey, so you're looking at newts as well. So what does that involve? Well, that involves um, surveying ponds and watercourses, and you can use a variety of techniques. Um, one that's very popular at the moment is environmental eDNA surveys. Mm-hmm. Well, we take 20 samples from around the outside, the perimeter of the pond, and then they are put in a preservative and sent off to a laboratory to see if there is any new DNA. Yeah. And that's a great quick way of surveying. And other types are we use bottle traps, mm-hmm. which the great crested newts will swim up into. We set those late at night and check them very early in the morning. Yeah, That's nice because you actually get to see the newts. They're great, aren't they? Yeah, it's, it's always nice to see the species that you're studying. So, and we can also use netting and egg searches where we, newts fold their eggs um, in leaves of aquatic plants. And so we can very carefully check for the presence of those eggs around the perimeter of the pond. There's a variety of different methods that we can use. And with bats and newts, you actually have a license to do that, don't you? So it's not something that the members of the public can do. Uh, That's right. You're potentially going to disturb those animals. So it's important you do it within best practice guidelines and you have a, you apply to Natural England for a survey license. And there are other protected species as well, but the timing of the surveys is so important, isn't it? Because um, I know that some developments can be held up because it's not the right time of year to carry out, let's say, the Great Crested Newt survey. Have you found that to be a common scenario or are, are developers getting more clued up onto the ecological calendar? I think each year that passes, there seems to be more experience from uh, from the developer of um, seasonal constraints. But each year there will be a number of uh, developers that have miscalculated those timings and uh, fall just outside of a, a survey guide of seasonal constraints. And we'll always try and do our best to help those developers. But sometimes they are outside of the required mm. window. And there's nothing you can do other than wait for the next window to get your plant, you know, to put in your baseline report. So I guess getting that preliminary ecological survey carried out, which can be done at any time of year, is absolutely critical, isn't it, to highlight protected species surveys that will be needed? Absolutely. You can do the um, preliminary ecological appraisal at any time of the year. The only caveat to that is if you had um, particularly interesting plant species on that site, you may have to do a follow-up botanical survey because if you go in the dead of winter, you may not 
observe certain plant species. Mm -hmm. But it's certainly a great place to start. And it means that you're getting all the information at the outset of a project before a master plan um, has gone so far down the line that it's difficult to backtrack and work around the constraints. So let's say planning permission has been granted and what sort of typical planning conditions are placed regarding ecology and how do you approach those? Well, quite often we get conditions that we will just refer to the reports that have been prepared for the site, which is quite a neat way of doing it because Mm -hmm. then you've written the reports and you can go back and these were the requirements, pre-clearance walkovers or certain mitigation requirements for licenses. Other conditions that you may have is to ensure that you've got the correct licenses, that your lighting is sympathetic to the species. That's a frequent one. And another one is that you have an ecological management plan that clearly sets out um, how the ecological constraints will be dealt with not just during the construction phase, but also the operational phase. And a lot of times that is a requirement before, is either pre-clearance requirement, Mm -hmm. pre-occupation requirement. Mm -hmm. That can be another place where a developer can be delayed if, if documents like that aren't prepared in a timely manner. And what sort of simple ecological mitigation methods do you routinely prescribe and recommend? Well, um, simple ones would be um, installing features such as bat boxes um, and bird boxes to replace lost roosts and um, to replace uh, if there's any tree removal. We'd also install features such as um, log piles and high binacular mm-hmm. for reptiles and great crested buttes. And that's bearing in mind that species and taxa such as um, bats and great crested buttes will have much more detailed mitigation requirements as part of their licensing processes. Okay, and we have the new biodiversity net gain, which is a new assessment that's being required, not quite by law yet all over the UK. Is it still advisory? Is that correct at the moment? Yeah, I think it it seems set to become law maybe at the end of this year or into next year. There isn't, um, it hasn't been clearly specified as yet. But a lot of developers are planning in biodiversity net gain mm-hmm. into their designs now in anticipation that it is likely to become a requirement. And it's hugely mathematical and you say quite a dry subject earlier before the interview, but <laughs> actually can deliver great benefits. Um, bit of a tall challenge, but could you just outline the fundamental aspects of biodiversity net gain? Yeah, biodiversity net gain is an approach to development that sets out to increase biodiversity in comparison to what was there before Mm -hmm. pre-development. So a simple example, um, you would look at the habitats Mm pre-development and you would measure the size of those uh, habitats and the condition of them, the way they're connected to other habitats. Mm -hmm. And you would apply, you'd use Natural England's um, biodiversity metric too as a calculator. Um, and that uses the habitats as a proxy for biodiversity and creates a biodiversity unit. And you compare the number of biodiversity units pre-development to the number of units post-development. Development, the developer can increase um, the number of biodiversity units post-development by increasing the areas of good suitable habitat within their new development, or they can enhance those areas, you know, or they can secure... Uh, habitats off-site doesn't have to be on-site 
really you're looking for a minimum 10% net gain of your biodiversity units post-development mm -hmm. compared to pre-development. It'd be quite hard to achieve that. I mean, I've been working on a site where that was very difficult to achieve. Do you think that this new practice of biodiversity net gain will lead to really enhance wildlife sites or in fact a call for more local wildlife sites to act as these receptors for developers paying for biodiversity net gain. Do you think it will change the landscape in that way if it can't be achieved on site? I think for some sites where you're able to be involved early enough um, it's, it's quite often achievable Good. and sometimes it's it's actually there before we get, you know, you, you do the calculation based on the existing master plan and they've achieved it. Mm -hmm. On other sites, it's much more difficult. And that's where your off-site mitigations uh, more typically used. And I think there may be a call for land banks to provide off-site mitigation where it's just not possible to achieve it on-site. But it's not really the point, is it? I would say that the, the purpose of biodiversity net gain is to enrich each individual site. And so then collectively they join together and create pathways for nature. That, that's what we all want, isn't it? Yeah, and, and to avoid fragmentation in yes. the landscape. So you don't want a series of um, unsuitable habitats between good habitats. You want connectivity. But it will be interesting to see how it how it gets applied and the successes. I know, and it, it calls for real close collaboration with the landscape architect and the arboriculturalist as well, because simple things like if trees do need to be felled, we can use that timber for the deadwood habitat, etc. So... There's a lot of sort of no-brainer things, joined-up thinking that can make a difference. Susie, it sounds like such a fascinating career. Where can people find out about being an ecologist? Um, I think a great place to start is, is with SAIM, um, with the Chartered Institute of Ecology and Environmental Management. And you can do a quick Google search and find them. Uh, and it will set out everything you need to know about being an ecologist um, and how to get chartered as an ecologist. Um, and so that would be my recommendation. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. It's really enlightening. Joshua Daniels, Senior Site Manager. Joshua, what's your job title, please? So I'm, uh, I'm one of the Senior Build Managers um, working um, for Gascoy and West Phase 1, which is our project, and our clients B First, which is essentially the London Borough of Barking and Dagenham. So what's a site like you're working on at the moment? So it's, uh, it's, it's comprised of three residential blocks, um, which range from 10 storeys to 12 storeys higher. Um, we're in Gascoigne Estate, which is um, going to be having the regeneration done um, and more work over the next 10 years. So within the next 10 years, this whole estate is going to be brought up to the standard compared to the 1960s what it is now so quite exciting project for all of us what do you need on a construction site to work safely and build the buildings um i'd probably say some of the key things that we normally try and plan from the start is a good welfare setup so we normally try and look at how many numbers we're going to have at our peak so on this job we're going to be hitting nearly 250 to 300 operatives um, in around March 2021. So we understand straight away how much uh, welfare facilities we need for the canteen um, and what we need for the drying room. So we've got enough lockers and everyone can have their own areas um, because we're obviously here a lot longer than what we are at home. 
Um, we're trying to make it as comfortable as we can. Um, and then obviously, since this pandemic, we've then learned how much social distance um, we need as well. So we were quite lucky that we were ordering the cabins just before, um, at, at the same time, near enough, so that we then, um, before we normally wait and we normally get bigger cabins on later on, we tried to get the cabins in early. So then we had social distance rules already active by the time it actually hit. So we were quite fortunate in that compared to other jobs in London that just had the click of a finger, had to deal with social distance in the 300 men. But yeah, we, we were quite um, lucky on the journey, really, that it happened at the same time we were all in the cabins. Um, so the cabin setup is, is massively important. And then obviously following on from that is the, the logistics of the gates and the vehicle entrance. I mean, it's, it's a tight site, I imagine. So many of these sites in London are really short of space. So um, what does, I, do you have any piling on site? And, and if so, what does that actually mean in terms of the building footprint? Yeah, um, so this, the, type, the site we have um, in Barking or Gascoigne Estate is, is literally surrounded by all the local residents. So we normally try to minimise any vibration, any noise on site. So we actually chose a, a CFA piling, which is a continuous flying auger. Um, this, this piling technique is really good for built-up environments. So it's essentially a, a large auger that has a, it's like a, like a big corkscrew. It goes into the mm -hmm. ground um, and once it gets to the, the depth required, such as 25 metres, it then returns and it starts um, pulling up as well as mm -hmm. rotating backwards. And as it's rotating backwards out of the ground, it's got a hollow shell inside and it pumps concrete. Mm -hmm. Okay. So it's pumping concrete in as we pull up. So then once you finish that section, you can then get the excavator and then slide the reinforcement in, um, oh, okay. which is the best technique. And then we repeat that process all the way through. Because the other type of piling is um, driven piling, where you get the hammer yeah. and it's bang, 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 um, which is good and efficient, but not good in a built environment at the minute. Well, the reason why I talk about that is, um, as you know, I'm an aboriculturalist, and many of us think that piling is a good solution to working with trees. How tall are the buildings? Our tallest block is up to 12 stories high. And so the piling supported by a ring beam, isn't it, which requires quite a deep excavation. Is that correct? Yeah. So we normally try and bring the piles quite high. So then when we dig down to the cutoff level and put the pile cap on top, which is when then the structural columns go on top, we normally try and keep them um, about two metres down. Um, and this sort of allows the waterproofing um, to be done. Yeah. And the reason why I've brought that up on a Tree Lady Talks podcast is because piling is often seen as a really good solution to keep tree roots but the reality is with these big buildings it still is a trench so and and i know that with this site you've worked really closely with an aboriculturalist haven't you because there's some trees next to the site how's that gone for you yeah i mean because obviously we're we're sort of new on to gascoigne estate um we early on started to try and make really good engagement with again all our consultants just so that we've got that point of contact from now and, and we're going to be working as a state for the next 10 years. So this for us isn't just a project. It's more of a, a scheme and a development that's going to be here for the next 10 years. So we've tried to make the best relationships we can with, with all of them 
Um, this is why we've had a lot of uh, supervisions on site while we're doing excavations close to the trees. Um, and, and essentially, it's literally a phone call way. And once you have those uh, relationships on site, um, we can obviously even do this by photographs um, and even video calls, essentially, which we're having to do with some of our consultants. So, um, yeah, 100%. The more, the more relationships you make, um, it makes work so much easier at the same time. Yeah, it's all about relationships, actually. And that's been a theme throughout this podcast documentary is people like to work with people they get on with. And and in terms of the site that you describe, what sort of reasons has the arboriculturalist come to visit and record what's going on and work with you guys? Um, so the early stages, um, it, it even comes down to picking the type of holding we're using. So just before we're starting, um, we try to put the holding up just to make it secure um, before demolition and all the way along where the trees were um, we made sure that we were using uh, blocks so Kelly blocks is the weighted system to hold the holding in place instead of in-ground posts um, which could obviously affect the roots and then we already highlighted quite early on there was a section on the demolition building where we removed the existing foundations we have to go nearly three meters deep um, and it was going to be quite clear that the tree was already oversailing the building line. So it means that the roots are probably going to be wrapped around the foundation. So this was picked up quite early. Um, and during the demolition, we already highlighted to the demolition contractor where we're going to need uh, supervision on this area. Um, and then we basically planned in, picked a day, and we could have the watch and brief on site. Um, while we tried to remove this foundation and there was a lot of roots wrapped around the existing foundation that um, were essentially um, sort of cut, clean cut and hessian wrapped and made safe really so we can continue with the, uh, the new development. So, yeah. yeah, and um, on this site I understand you've had to have the trees pruned as well to make room for scaffolding because scaffolding has to come out a fair way, doesn't it, from the building. How, how wide does scaffolding need to be to be safe? So... Um, well, I'd say normally about 2.4 would be uh, the requirement from the edge of the building. 2.4 um, metres, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and that's allowing a safe working room for the scaffolding to be built. Um, also, when the scaffolders are, are trying to fix the monoflex, they need that room to be able to roll the monoflex out. Um, all this sort of sort of adds up if the branches are that little too close. Um, the last thing we need is it interfering with the scaffolding um, because it could essentially wrap around it. The scaffolding could be up for nearly a year. Um, so I think there's always going to be um, sort of areas where we're always going to be doing maintenance along this area while we're doing construction. Um, and again, once the scaffolding is removed and the new building's in place, we obviously have quite close balconies. So it's always going to be uh, erosion for the local uh, local council to try and make sure these trees are kept in good order and not going to be damaging the glass or the balconies or anything like that so i'm glad we've done it now and, and yeah that's space we've got on site well i mean it's all been described and written up in formal reports hasn't it there's been an arboricultural method statement that's been approved by the planning department that that you work to and then the idea of arboricultural supervision from my point of view is absolutely critical and have you found it helpful yeah i mean as soon as I landed on site, um, this was uh, in July 2019, last year, um, the first thing I normally try and look at is as many reports as I can, because 
I'm just looking at a little estate with no holding round. I can't find my boundary. And the first thing we're trying to look at is what's going to affect this boundary line. So the more reports I have, and especially the detail reports that we had to do of the trees and the TPOs, it clearly showed what areas need to be protected and what areas need to be uh, maybe addressed during construction. So from that, I can literally straight away try to work out where we're going to have the holding, send that to the contractors so they understand. And then again, that same plan can be sent to UK Per Network um, for laying new cables, the BT, and also the gas. So when they're coming to do their new services, we can already say to them, I don't think you should have it there. I think maybe you should move it a few metres down this way, um, which is out of the line. And, and to be fair, even the strategy providers do take it serious as well. So I'm glad we have yeah. it clearly on site for them. Yeah, that's really great. And I know that um, many arboriculturalists working with people like yourselves are engaged all the way through that process and are constantly commenting on slight changes in design to do with underground services and, and also how you have to safely move around the site. Because particularly with coronavirus, you've now got to have like two-way systems where you can, whereas previously there was one. And so I know that you've looked, you've used tree protection fencing and ground protection, haven't you, for, for people and buildings? That's great. Um, have you also found that using a high level of supervision has helped your relationship with the community and the local authority as well, and that they feel that they can trust what you're doing? Yeah, I mean, as part of this development, our community engagement is is high priority. So even working with B first which is a side arm for the regeneration London Bark in Dagenham it means our client is almost sort of integrated with the local community anyway so naturally we've had to go along that journey um, but even as Waits residential we are known um, for doing a lot of uh, community engagement early on so we've already done this gone round to um, a lot of the local development, um, go to a lot of the, the meetings that are chaired with the local governors um, and the, the community come along and we get to meet and greet and really have that one-to-one -one relationship with them um, with our point of contact. So we have all our uh, email addresses, our numbers on the holding and literally over this year we've, we've managed to make really good working relationships as well as uh, actual relationships with the local people. So. We've even been doing food drops off, um, food oh, bank connections, anything that we can do during this hard time yeah. while we are still working. It's been a pleasure to try and carry on doing. Oh, that's so inspiring. And thank you so much for talking to us about that, because I think there has been a problem with the perception of builders. Obviously, it's a really broad description to say builders, you at, at weights construction are at the top of your game in terms of the thoroughness that you consider absolutely every aspect from safety of people to protection of the natural environment and compliance with reports but again it's all about communication isn't it sounds like you absolutely love yeah job. i mean i've loved construction ever since i was a little kid i think even when i got my first lego set and i was building stuff i loved it but I've done quite a lot. I've I've been working for Essex Water um, when I was young, working for my uncle's company, um, digging holes, laying water mains. Uh, but I always knew I wanted to go to uni and, and be an architect. And uh, when I got to that stage, I realised it's seven years of learning. 
And uh, in the end, I, I just wanted to go to project managing because it was uh, it just appealed to me a lot more. Um, that way I get to work with the consultants uh, at that level. Um, and then at the same time, I can be one day talking to the client um, and the next thing I could walk out on site and, and be talking to an operative on site at that level. So my communication range uh, has massively grown over the last few years. And to be able to understand all the different roles and levels of people um, and deal with the day-to-day -day issues, it, it just probably keeps the fire going in me. So yeah. I'm thoroughly enjoying it. And, uh, and yeah, I'm, I'm not retiring yet. I'm going to keep going. <laughs> oh, you've got a long way to your retire. But I absolutely <laughs> echo what you say. The thing that I love about my job is meeting all the different people as well. Absolutely every single type of person. And it's really enriching. So thank you so much. We really appreciate your time. So no thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, that was a massive, massive episode. I thought it was going to be a big one. It didn't disappoint, did it? Well, there's so much to say. It's such a complex subject and rightly so. I mean, I've, I really felt linked in with all of them when all the consultants are talking about very similar things. They're talking about fundamentals, which are, you know, nice places make you feel better. Um, they want to get in from the very start of the process. And, and they all seem to have the same, the same work ethic, which is, you know, they're really passionate about it and they want to get it done the best way they can. I think it's a fantastic. Absolutely. They all love their job and they like communicating about it with each other. And I think what's really been learnt in the last sort of 10, 20 years is we have to get in early, all of the consultants, and work with the team. And those recommendations need to chime with each other and be carried through on the development site itself. It shouldn't just be box-ticking exercise of getting the right reports in place. It's got to happen on the ground. And that's what's going to deliver the change to people's lives. I must say, I, when Catherine said that uh, she was talking about tree-lined streets and, and, you know, it just makes you feel better, it just took me straight to Paris. I thought, oh, yeah, oh, I'd like to be there. But of course, we can't at the moment. <laughs> no. Um, but, no, fabulous contributions and, and every single one of them passionate about what they do. I think it was, was absolutely brilliant. Well, I'm looking forward to how the development industry moves forward in a sustainable way. I think it's really exciting. It's very exciting and, you know, it made me feel better. And, and that's a good thing because it kind of links into, into the next big episode, which is going to be even bigger than this one, I think. Oh, wow, we've just had such a great response on social media yeah, on our next subject, which is mental health and the natural world. I mean, it really has been so poignant during lockdown. And we've pulled together a team of experts. We have a world-leading academic, Dr. Matilda van den Bosch, who's going to be talking about the brain and what goes on inside us when we're out in nature and, and referencing important academic studies. We're talking to a really inspirational GP who's also been on the BBC about what's going on with our health right now and, and what measures can we take to improve it. We're going to talk to other leading health experts and also the Mersey Forest who deliver an incredible programme of social conservation work, helping people in cities who are perhaps lonely with issues. And perhaps really importantly, we're talking to members of the public who are sharing their own personal stories. I can't wait.